0: Greetings, this is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. Back in 2019, I wrote a post with a somewhat cheeky headline This one weird trick can help any state or city pass clean energy policy. In that post, I attempted to comprehensively review the clean energy policies passed in the last four or five years by sub national entities states, counties, and cities. What I found may shock you. Actually, it probably won't. Every case, at every level, had one thing in common. Democrats were in charge. It's difficult to muster kind words for Democrats in light of the slow-motion train wreck taking place in Washington, D.C. these days, but while it may not be entirely true at the national level, at the subnational level, it's just a fact. When Democrats gain control, they pass good, clean energy policy. A few weeks ago, I covered the fantastic policies recently passed in my home state of Washington. Today, we turn our gaze to Colorado. In 2018, Democrats gained a trifecta in Colorado, the governorship, and both houses of the legislature for the first time since 2013. They promptly got busy passing a vast array of clean energy policies, Reform of electric utilities, support for electric vehicles and charging infrastructure, new restrictions on oil and gas. In this latest session, Governor Jared Polis released a comprehensive roadmap to 90% statewide reductions by 2050, and the state legislature tackled clean buildings, industry, environmental justice, reform of state transportation agencies, reform of natural gas utilities, and on and on. Just listing all the bills would take an hour. Here to discuss this flurry of activity is Will Tour, Executive Director of the Colorado Energy Office, who has had a hand in shaping Polis's agenda from the beginning and has been instrumental in negotiating its way through the legislature. He's going to help us get our heads around Colorado's sector-by-sector approach, the extent of what it's accomplished so far, and what might be next for it. all right with uh no further ado uh will welcome to volts thank you uh so i've been following uh states and climate policy for a long time and and it seemed like uh a few years ago colorado just kind of burst out of the gate (laughs) at a full gallop and and has been going really strong now for two sessions of the legislature. So maybe just uh, by way of starting, tell us some about sort of the political developments of Colorado over the last five years that put all the pieces in place that allowed this burst of activity.
1: Yeah, you know, really, I think what happened was that in 2018, we both selected a new governor, Jared Polis got elected governor on a platform of among other things, 100% renewable electricity by 2040 and bold climate action. And we elected a Democratic Senate. We had had a Democratic House, but had not had a Democratic Senate since 2014. And so the combination of having a governor who was committed to climate action and a House and a Senate that were aligned, and the fact that there was just kind of a pent-up demand for action Mm -hmm. on climate and clean energy really set the stage for you know, a kind of monumental legislative section, session in 2019. So you know that year we had depending exactly how you count it, something like 15 major bills on <laughs> setting climate targets, uh, modernizing our utility regulation to set our utilities on a pathway to at least 80% greenhouse gas reductions by 2030, a bunch of bills on electric vehicles, bunch of bills on energy efficiency. We had a major oil and gas reform bill. Now, one of the things that's a little unusual is that Colorado is a major oil and gas producer that is actually acting on climate and clean energy and Senate bill 181, you know, completely rewrote the regulatory structure for oil and gas in Colorado. then, you know, last year was a little bit quieter because of the, the pandemic that kind mm-hmm. of shut down our, our legislative session partway through, although there was still lots of action at the Public Utilities Commission and the Air, Air Quality Control Commission. But then this year uh, has really shaped up to be a another... Another year where that kind of pent-up demand for for action really came out at the legislature. Well, I want to
0: get into um, I want to get into some of the specifics of the legislation, but just as a background political question, because I'm I'm curious: Do you have a supermajority of Democrats, or does the Colorado do you need a supermajority to sort of override Republican objections, or? Sort of like what's the what's the disposition of the state Republican Party on all this have they just kind of are they just irrelevantly sitting on the sidelines or is there some engagement uh, what's the what's the degree of Democratic domination I guess is what I'm asking
1: so there's a large Democratic majority in the house in the Senate it's a much narrower major- majority uh, for the uh, 20 29 29- and 2020, it was actually a one-vote margin. 1817 uh, after the 2020 elections, it's now a two 1916 margin. I would say that some of the issues have been bipartisan, but the you know the vast majority of votes on clean energy have been primarily Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one Republican in the Senate who is a very strong advocate for. Clean Energy and Climate Action, Senator uh, Kevin Priola, who has actually been a sponsor of many of the pieces of legislation. Mm. And, you know, where the Republican Party, I think, has had an impact has been often helping to shape some of the pieces of of legislation in, you know, ways that may make them work better for their communities. You know, they often represent rural parts of the state and there's been a lot of interest in trying to make sure that we're moving forward on climate action in ways that can work for rural Colorado in addition to the urban part of the state. We had one uh, major bill this year on funding our just transition efforts for coal communities, and that was a very bipartisan bill.
0: Right, I bet. Yeah. So um, one thing that happened this year, I think prior to most of the big Bills is uh, the governor issued his roadmap. This is a, a, a sort of roadmap whereby Colorado can reach its goals. So tell us, um, a sort of what the what the targets are, and sort of what is what is the roadmap. What was the purpose of the roadmap?
1: Yeah. So this really came out of that 2019 legislative session. One of the pieces of legislation that moved forward for the first time. Um, created legislatively adopted GHG targets for the state of Mm. a 50% reduction below 2005 levels by 2030 and a 90% reduction by 2050. And uh, the governor asked the energy office to convene uh, the other sort of major state agencies that were engaged on this, our Department of Public Health and Environment and Transportation and Ag and Natural Resources, and do both a technical analysis and a stakeholder process to basically develop the strategic plan for how are we actually going to achieve the the targets that we had adopted. Uh, We worked with Energy and Environmental Economics, E3, a consulting firm that's done Mm -hmm. scoping plans for a number of, of states over the years. And really developed a, a plan that was very much focused on what was achievable in each one of the major emitting sectors in the state. So transportation, electricity generation, the oil and gas industry, residential and commercial uh, fuel use and industrial fuel use and process emissions. You know those really dominate our emissions as a state and we develop sectoral Targets and near-term action steps for each one of those areas.
0: Right, maybe just uh, it would be helpful. I think to to tell listeners what is kind of the share of each of those. Like, what are the big the big categories to the little categories of, of emissions? Yeah. Sec- sector-wise.
1: So interestingly, if you look at transportation, electricity generation, the oil and gas industry, and then fuel use. Sort of combined in buildings and industry, mm-hmm. each one of those are fairly similar. They're they're each mm-hmm. around a quarter of our emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's slight, you know. Transportation is the largest single source, but by a pretty small margin.
0: And it just for- edged a, it just edged ahead recently, right? Which is the same thing that yeah. happened nationally.
1: Yeah, basically, electricity has been decarbonizing faster than any other sector. Right. So it used to be our largest, especially because Colorado has traditionally been a heavy coal Mm stage. Oil and gas, you know, it depends a little bit how you count things. So the way that we count it, the emissions of methane from the upstream oil and gas industry are one category. And Mm -hmm. then the combustion emissions that they have from the processing of oil and gas actually fit within our industrial sector if you put those together, oil and gas would actually be the, the largest single source. So there's different oh, wow. ways that you can parse it. But the way that we generally parse it is transportation, biggest, followed by electricity, followed mm-hmm. by oil and gas, and then industrial and buildings.
0: Okay, well, let's start with electricity, because in some ways, it's kind of the most straightforward. I think the policy instruments are sort of the most <laughs> well understood. The, the road ahead is the, you're well understood so what's what are the big things uh colorado's doing on electricity i know obviously getting rid of coal has got to be step one right i mean or at least phasing phasing it down
1: yeah so essentially again coming out of 2019 we had a an interesting sort of legal and regulatory structure where our largest single utility Excel Energy, which accounts right. for more than half of the generation in the state had a voluntary commitment to achieve 80% by 2030. And we worked with them to write it into statute. So they were legally required hmm. to submit a plan to the Public Utilities Commission to achieve 80%.
0: Just them or, then, all, or all utilities?
1: Well, the way that we structured it, they were legally required. Other utilities weren't technically required But we gave a broad grant of authority to the State Air Commission to regulate them, but Mm. said that if they submitted a plan to the Public Utilities Commission that would achieve 80% by 2030, then they would have a safe harbor from additional air regulation until Mm. 2030. We then went out to every utility and said, wouldn't you rather just do this on your own terms rather than us have to create a mini clean power plan for the state <laughs> and and essentially all of the utilities said well yeah we would that that works for us and so we're in a place where for other utilities they have all voluntarily come forward with plans we've since passed legislation that actually puts additional regulatory um, in place. And so there's now legislation that says that if any utility did not come forward with a plan, the Air Commission within nine months would have to adopt rules requiring them to get to 80%. Mm. But, But we're in a place where all these plans are just moving forward. And it's been pretty remarkable to see you know our second largest utility, Tri-State generation and transmission is a and t cooperative who provide the electricity for most of the rural co-ops in the state right and they are they're historically very coal heavy they, yes I, I was going to ask the, they're
0: they're led sort of legendarily problematic in 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 all states
1: yeah they not only owned you know multiple coal power plants they actually in some ways were were a vertically integrated coal company in the Northwestern Colorado, they um, owned coal mine and had, you know, mine mouse uh, power plants. And in the past, you know, they were funders of climate denial at the national level. Their prior CEO was kind of legendary for a conference where he stated that to sort of pull from the NRA, you'll you'll pry our coal plants out of my (laughs) cold dead fingers. That completely changed in 2019. So he... That CEO was still the CEO when I started this job, when I came in with Governor Polis in January of 2019. By April, they had new leadership. That new leadership came in to meet with me to talk about how, how can I work with the, the governor's office to help meet his clean energy goals. Oh, wow. And with it, by January of the next year, Tri-State had adopted a plan to close every coal power plant they have in Colorado and New Mexico to reduce in-state emissions 90% by 2030. And they have since submitted a plan to our public utilities commission that would achieve 80% reduction in emissions serving retail loads. So including the electricity they're importing from Wyoming and and Arizona. Excel uh, recently filed their clean energy plan and their exceeding the minimum requirement. They're proposing a, approximately an 85% uh, reduction. Our municipal utilities, one of them adopted a plan to get to 80%, another a plan to get to 90%. How much of all <laughs> this is
0: just going to be shutting down coal plants? I mean, it's I guess it's kind of a low-hanging fruit. Is that the bulk of where it, most of this is coming from?
1: Yeah, it's basically shutting down coal plants, adding a whole bunch of utility scale wind and solar and a fair amount of distributed generation adding a fair amount of battery storage hmm. and you know backing it up with gas combustion turbines there's a little bit you know we have one utility somewhat smaller rural utility but that's very progressive Holy Cross Energy who are committed to 100% oh, wow. carbon free by 2030 and they're doing a lot that's focused on demand flexibility right. and and a lot more on storage but at the at the large scale it's really shutting down coal replacing it with renewables
0: and renewables have gotten <laughs> crazy cheap in oh, in colorado specifically right i mean cheapest in yeah
1: i think yeah i mean we're, we're lucky in that we have both a good solar resource and a good wind resource back in 2018 You know, a whole lot of heads turned when Excel did their all sources solicitation and they were getting back, you know, bids for wind that were coming at at under two cents a kilowatt hour, and they were getting solar with storage for under three cents a kilowatt hour. And that's a lot of what's enabled this transition is the fact that you have all these legacy coal plants that you know cost four, four and a half cents a kilowatt hour for operations and maintenance it becomes a pretty easy decision to replace that right. with 2 cents a kilowatt hour wind.
0: <laughs> well, this uh, actually raises another thing that that happened to utilities in Colorado. I think it was this year, but they're all going to join organized markets, RTOs. What's the what's the story there?
1: Yeah, so there was legislation this session, Senate Bill 72 that is really going to push the state towards uh, an organized market. It both creates a, a transmission authority, it encourages larger build-out of transmission, not only within the state, but you know, connecting to, mm-hmm. to larger markets. And it effectively requires that by 2030, our utilities join organized regional markets. It's not an absolute requirement if our Public Utilities Commission were to find that it wasn't in the public interest mm-hmm. or that it would somehow get in the way of meeting our clean energy goals so it's not a 100% requirement right. but but given the fact that it should give us greater access to wind to the east and solar to the west and you know more mm. of an ability to average renewables over a larger area it it certainly seems very likely that it will move forward what
0: rto would be would they be joining
1: so the bill does not specify you know there's basically you can look East towards the SPP market, or you could right. look West towards, you know, ultimately Cal ISO.
0: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and yeah, so- have you, do you know if there are other, <laughs> I mean, this is, I don't want to get on a diversion, but do you know if there are other Western states that are, cause this has been talked about, you know, for ages, yeah. trying to get a Western market started. Do you know if other states are as close as Colorado to kind of making that jump?
1: So I think that there is a, a strong movement across the Western states. You know, I don't know that people are, are quite ready to to make the jump. There's a multi-state study that mm-hmm. Colorado is part of that uh, Utah is actually sort of coordinating that's looking at options. Um, there's legislation, you know, that I think is being pr- proposed in, in other states, very similar to the legislation in, in Colorado. So I think there's a lot of interest mm-hmm. and there's certainly a lot of discussions taking place, but... You know there there's a lot of complications in yes. getting from here from here to there and doing so in a way that works financially for customers and for the utilities and that ensures that the clean energy goals of the different states are are honored. You know one of the issues that we face is there's some pretty different politics uh, among the western yes. states.
0: <laughs> yes, both of which are leery about the politics <laughs> of the other.
1: As a sort of interesting digression. One of the pieces of legislation that got a fair amount of play in uh, the Colorado press from our fellow state, Wyoming, this year was when they uh, created a fund of $1.2 million to sue right. other states yes. for not buying. I wrote about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm just going to assume that that has very little <laughs> legal merit. Uh, I mean,
1: yes, I, I don't think that I would be very c- concerned Was it? And the truth is, I mean, we have a fine relationship with Wyoming, and I I don't anticipate there will be any litigation.
0: You don't anticipate being forced (laughs) forced by the Supreme Court to burn Wyoming coal. Uh, Okay, so electricity uh, is awesome, but in some sense, kind of straightforward. You're going to close down the coal plants. You're going to ramp up your renewables. You're going to build a bunch more transmission. You're going to get utilities oriented in the right direction. Get them in a market that seems all sort of tidy and doable other sectors are, are more complicated. Let's talk about then industry. Um, you know, sort of industry is known as one of the difficult to decarbonize sectors or at least less certain how to decarbonize. Uh, what's the kind of Colorado approach to industry? And, and it's kind of a side question, how much of what counts as industry in Colorado is just the fossil fuel industry, it, it, you know, such that it will disappear when fossil fuels disappear?
1: So if you look at our kind of industrial uh, inventory. I think right now it's about 15 million tons a year. And I think about half of that is really the combustion emissions associated with the midstream oil and gas industry. Hmm. The other other half are refinery that provides a lot of the liquid transportation fuels on the front range, the Suncor refinery. Mm -hmm. It's the steel mills. For the steel mm. mill in, in Pueblo, although that steel mill now has a 250 megawatt on site solar plant providing uh. a large part of their electricity. Cement facilities, we've, we've got a couple of large cement plants. We also have uh, semiconductor like chip factories and then a a lot of smaller Mm -hmm. uh, industry that that contributes also. And I I would say there's a couple different pieces that are are moving there. So one is on the regulatory front, the target that we adopted in industry for 2030 is not nearly as aggressive as it is for electricity. So we're going Mm -hmm. 80% in electricity. Mm -hmm. We're headed for a 20% reduction in industry. that's a 20% below 2005 level. So it's a Mm -hmm. larger reduction from today because emissions have grown over time. But it's certainly, you know, what we see as being possible in the industrial sector is not as deep as the technology and economics allow on the electricity side. There are a series of rulemakings that are moving forward at our state air commission. There's one happening right now that's focused on our trade-exposed, energy-intensive industries, yeah, basically steel ask. and cement, and then there will be other follow-up ones over the next two years. Under legislation that just passed, there's a statutory requirement that by the, I believe it's the end of 2023, rules need to be in place that assure a we'll get to that 20% by 2030. The other piece that's moving forward is we're, we're seeing a lot of activity on the carbon capture and sequestration front. Mm. So which is interesting because this was something that we did not pay a lot of attention to in our first draft of the roadmap. Basically our analysis said okay this is something that may be important post 2030 but we don't think we're going to see a lot of it in the near term. But then we started hearing from all of these industrial players who were working on developing projects and we, we ended up not setting any pre- target in the roadmap for what we needed in carbon capture by 2030, but instead putting together a carbon capture task force that's meeting this year and is gonna come back to the governor and legislature by the end of the year with recommendations about what we should be doing on carbon capture. You know, the big project that has a lot of momentum right now is actually at one of our cement plants, uh, wholesome cement plant or wholesome Lafarge cement plant in Southern Colorado, the town of Florence is working with oxy low carbon solutions on a carbon capture project for that cement plant. And, you know, they're still, they've done initial feasibility study. They're now in a more detailed engineering study.
0: To do what? With the captured carbon, though, what's, what's to be done with the carbon? Are they going to bury it, or are they going to try to use it somehow, or do they know?
1: So I think it's a little bit of an open question. One of the things that we have in Colorado are a lot of saline formations that are actually, yeah yeah right you know, geologically good places for, mm. for sequestering carbon. There's also a carbon pipeline um, that crosses southern Colorado, so they would potentially have the option of you know, using it for something like enhanced oil recovery, which is probably not the, from a state perspective, we're probably a lot more interested in seeing it sequestered than seeing it used for something like EOR. We're also seeing a number uh, of other projects that are smaller scale that are also in their sort of feasibility analysis side. So I think it's fairly likely that we're going to see some Know meaningful scale carbon capture projects uh, move forward, and interesting as a state over the next year, we're going to need to to figure out what role do we see this playing in in meeting our targets? How do we look at something like EOR versus you know true sequestration?
0: Yeah, that's so tricky. <laughs> that's so tricky from accounting yeah. accounting perspective, political perspective, you name it.
1: One of the things that's interesting is in terms of scale, you know, if you, you think about the 20% reduction that we need in the industrial sector. So we're talking there's something like a three million ton reduction. You know, I think that the scale of capture that they're talking about in, you know, just that wholesome project could be on the order of a million tons a year. So oh, wow. if, you know, we're we're potentially talking significant, you know, a significant role there. We're early in our task force right. process. We won't have recommendations to the governor till the end of the year. But it, at the very least, it, it's intriguing to really start understanding what some of the opportunities may be there. Yeah. There's also, I have to say, a really interesting project that is moving forward sort of independently of, of the state. Uh, in Southern Colorado, the Southern Utes are historically... They are producers of methane, kind of coal bed methane. You know, they've got a, a natural gas industry and they are uh, working on a proposed project that would be an alum cycle gas plant.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: With, I think, saline storage and saline formations on the on the reservation. And they're looking at a fairly large, like their proposed plant, I think, is a 350 megawatt plant. And we weren't. Really anticipating that that type of low carbon firm generation might be coming you know during this decade, but again we're we're seeing independently a, a project moving forward that is very interesting
0: yeah that's uh, such an interesting X factor the the alum cycle yeah be, be a great thing for Colorado to, to stake a claim on yeah. Okay, that's industry. Next uh, is, is the source of a lot of action and excitement, this particular section, which is buildings. Um, you know, this is, a, again, a much less straightforward <laughs> area in, in terms of mechanics about how to get at these emissions than, than electricity or something like that. Review a little bit about, I mean, there were multiple pieces of the buildings <laughs> pushed this, yeah. uh, th- this session. What, what all did you guys do?
1: Yeah, no, this one is really exciting. And this is one that I would say has been really interesting because some of the advocates have argued that we need to focus on sort of enforceable air regulations that somehow would decarbonize buildings. And we really couldn't figure out what that looked like. (laughs) But what we did come up with was a series of strategies in the roadmap that all of which amazingly moved through the, the legislature this year. We had I would say four major, major bills that move forward. Three of them are sort of tools. And then one is the overall organizing principle that allows those tools to be applied. The tools were first a beneficial electrification bill Mm -hmm. that requires our electric utilities to create electrification programs that are analogous to their energy efficiency demand side management programs, requires the public utilities commission to set targets for those programs based upon all cost effective electrification. And it builds into that cost test, the social cost of both carbon dioxide and methane emissions avoided, and Mm -hmm. requires the use of a discount rate of under two and a half percent. So it Pushes you to the higher number from that 2016 right. interagency study, the same one basically that um, State of Washington used. So it starts at about seventy dollars a ton for carbon dioxide in 2020, and forget I think around fourteen hundred a ton for for methane. We think that that will drive significant investment in electrification
0: and when you say electrification programs at utilities you just mean sort of like incentives for heat pumps and and things like that
1: yeah so on the residential commercial side you know we think it would be primarily heat pumps and heat pump water heaters Mm. and then there they could also be doing things on the industrial side right where there's a wider variety it also allows them to uh, create programs to support new all-electric construction. Mm. Um, So that's, that's one piece. Another piece focuses on the gas utilities and it basically expands existing gas utility energy efficiency programs. Right now we've got, you know, pretty large electric utility programs and quite a bit smaller gas utility programs. And what this does is it takes that same social cost of carbon and methane, builds it into the cost tests, and then requires the PUC to set targets based upon all cost-effective energy efficiency measures. So we think that will drive substantial additional investment in upgrading existing buildings. Third, thing, piece of legislation focused on commercial buildings. Again, this may sound a, a little bit familiar from, from Washington State. We looked at some of the successful efforts there two years ago, right. and it requires both benchmarking of energy use uh, by those buildings. And then it sets uh, rulemaking at our State Air Commission uh, to adopt performance standards for existing buildings that require that the sector as a whole needs to achieve at least 20% reduction in emissions below 2005 levels by 2030 and so that's including all the growth in the number of buildings since right. then the entire sector has to get to that 20% and amazingly on that one it actually ended up being something approaching a consensus bill it wasn't just <laughs> the environmental community I
0: thought real estate I thought real estate and builders hate that stuff what how what you pull what you pull on them
1: So we just worked in good faith with all the parties. We agreed to create a a task force that has significant representation from building owners of various sorts in developing the proposed performance standards. But the legislation specifies what the performance standards have to achieve. And so we need to certify that those standards will achieve the 20% by 2030. But it was endorsed by the Building Owners and Managers Association and by NIOP. Wow. Um, and labor was on board with it. You know, that's one thing that's been very important to us is to, to make sure that we're moving this forward in, in a way that helps you know, provide good jobs. We're making sure that any utility-funded programs or high labor standards I think it's very important to us both substantively and in terms of holding a broad coalition together to do this in a way that works for labor and that assures that we're helping to create good jobs as we go forward. Mm -hmm. We also really wanted to avoid the kind of sort of existential battle over building electrification we've seen in some places. that we saw tank legislation in breaking out, this year. <laughs> breaking
0: out all over, there's running running battles all over the country now on that stuff.
1: And that sort of feeds into then the, the fourth big bill that sort of pulls us all together and which is I think the real innovation here. Senate bill 264 that we refer to as the, the clean heat standard bill sets uh, carbon reduction uh, requirements for our gas distribution utilities and it includes in their carbon emissions, you know, the emissions from combustion of gas by their customers. It again is aligned with our roadmap targets in that sector. So it's a 22% reduction by 2030. They're allowed to use multiple measures. So they can use, do, they can do more energy efficiency. They can do more electrification. They can inject hydrogen into their mm-hmm. gas lines. They can reduce leaks on their distribution system. And we allowed limited use of what some people call renewable natural gas. We refer to it as biomethane and recovered methane. So out of that. Is that mostly,
0: does that mostly come from agriculture in Colorado or landfills or what? What's the where does that come from?
1: So there will be landfills, sewage treatment plants agriculture, especially, you know, some of our dairy farms. The, the other place where I think there is an opportunity is there are abandoned coal mines in Western Colorado right. that are just pouring methane into the right. atmosphere. And as of now, there is only one project in the state that is capturing and, and using that methane. Yikes. And so so there's a number of opportunities there. The way it's, it's structured out of the the target, they can reach about a quarter of the target through the use of recovered methane Mm. or biomethane, and the rest of it has to happen from sort of on system reductions.
0: I Well, I have a question about this. I mean, for, for utilities that are electric and gas, this seems kind of straightforward. Like you just shift from the one to the other, right? You shift from natural gas to electricity would be your main tool and you're fine with that. But for natural gas utilities that are just natural gas utilities, I see the road to, like, you know, these, like, 20%, 20%, 22% reductions through these kind of bricolage efforts, efficiency here, reducing leaking there. But, you know, you don't get to zero. Yeah. with natural gas so like if you're a natural gas utility the end of this story is you going out of business is it not or or, or like how are they how are natural gas utilities viewing all this
1: well so a, a couple things i'd say there so we did structure this around you know there's the near term target of you know the 22% by 2030 mm-hmm. the legislation also has the 90% by 2050 sets future rulemaking proceedings for setting targets for you know 2035, 40, 45 on that road right. to 50. So at one level I, I would say people are focused on the next decade right. and know the, the way that we've framed it is that you know none of us really know what the ultimate solution is going to be. Some people think they know you know there, there are certainly folks who argue that the solution is obviously full building electrification and maybe they're right. There are others who argue that we're going to, you know, figure out a way to do air capture of carbon-induced synthetic methane, and it will be using that, or that we're going to get to a point where we can use higher percentages of carbon or of hydrogen than we think we do in the pipes Mm -hmm. we're not trying to answer that question today because a we don't feel like we have enough information to really answer it the truth is nobody has really done the level of analysis that would be required in colorado as a cold climate state to Mm -hmm. answer what would it really mean for us to fully electrify? What would it mean for our electric grid? Nobody really knows how some of these other technologies are going to pan out. And we don't need to answer that today. So we intentionally structured something that allows us to use multiple measures today. It allows the utilities and customers to gain experience with all of these things. It's going to, I think, lead to a big increase in the use of heat pumps in Colorado and allow us to get real experience with using cold climate heat pumps and working out all the kinks and figuring out how do you get high levels of of customer uptake. It will allow utilities to see what they can do in in terms of making your recovered methane and biomethane affordable at scale. And then you know, over the next decade, I think we will need to answer some some bigger questions about okay, what does it really look like post 2030? We're not trying to prejudge those answers, mm-hmm. and because of that, we were able to to have a broad coalition that supported this legislation. Our largest gas utility, Excel Excel Energy, is a dual dual fuel utility. Mm-hmm. They actually supported the legislation. Other utilities were not necessarily actively supporting, but I believe in the end there were no utilities that were actively lobbying against the legislation.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And, you know, I think that we had all had the opportunity to, to watch what happened in the Nevada legislature this year <laughs> where there was a sort of similar effort, but one that I think perhaps w- was not as focused on building consensus among multiple parties. <laughs> you know, our sense is that we're a lot better off trying to do it the Colorado way and get as many people as possible on board, learn from it, and then we'll figure out what the next steps are.
0: All right. So so for buildings, (laughs) then, you you have an overall greenhouse gas reduction target, specific um, boosts for energy efficiency and electrification, specific targets for reducing gas, uh, specifically gas emissions, energy performance standards the one thing that seems to be missing is building codes have you tackled those or addressed those yet or what's the deal with that
1: so so that's very much on our agenda for the next big thing we need to do and you know we did some work on this in 2019 colorado is a a state that's traditionally a local control state on building codes Mm -hmm. Uh, but we were able to do legislation in 2019 that put certain minimum standards on uh, local energy codes, but it needs to be updated. It's it's not aligned with where we need to be to achieve right. our 2050 targets. And so this is something we called out in the roadmap. We didn't have the bandwidth to do that in addition to everything mm-hmm. else this year, but I'm certainly hoping that we are going to have you know some vigorous stakeholder conversations over the next year and come back to how do we how do we move forward on building codes in a way that aligns with where we need to be to if we're gonna have decarbonized buildings, you know, that get us to 90% or more by 2050.
0: All right, well, let's then hit the last one, the, the, the biggest one in Colorado and probably the biggest source of controversy and the biggest source of angst in climate policy, generally, namely transportation.
1: Or just before we jump to that, can I throw one other, which is oil and gas, which oh, yeah, in other right. places may not be so big, but for us, <laughs> right, it yes. is a really big part of our emissions is methane leaking from the oil and gas upstream operations. And that's one where the, the stars are kind of aligned, where there's real opportunities to reduce those emissions. Some of it is driven by sensing technology. There's just much better ability to actually monitor right. uh, emissions than there used to be. And that means that you can actually regulate them and you you can reduce them. And so we've got a target in the roadmap of at least a 60% reduction in methane emissions. And that is moving forward in a, a rulemaking process at the Air Commission that the stakeholding is happening right now. It will be go to the Air Commission for adoption later this year and legislation that was just passed uh, puts that into statute so the air commission rules have to achieve a 60% reduction. It also requires um, every two years a inventory process to make sure that we're on track and requires additional rulemakings to get there if we find that sort of the real world emissions aren't on the trajectory that we think they're going to be.
0: Is this, uh, is part of the thinking behind this, I mean, this is a national problem, you know, and it's a long, long-standing national problem, these leaks and the industry has traditionally not been very helpful. (laughs) They've demanded voluntary standards and et cetera. Is part of the goal here to sort of kickstart this work and figure things out in such a way that they can be kind of exported like these sensing technologies and just, ways of doing this or or is it that we already know how to do it pretty well and is they're just not doing it <laughs> you
1: well know you know I mean? the way that that i would describe it is you know in back in i think it was 2014 colorado adopted our first round of methane regulations and those did become the model for the national raids that the obama mm. administration adopted that the trump administration unadopted and yeah. yeah, that are being readopted <laughs> right now <laughs> fun fun um, and so you know we, we certainly would hope that what we're doing here could could help to inform a, a national standard in the future the way you know to some extent the way that we arrived at our targets was we looked at what sort of the the leading oil producers with esg commitments were saying they could do and we said well great uh, just like we worked with Excel to take their voluntary commitment and put into the statute, right? Where we take you at your word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> call and your call your bluff might be another no, way
1: to no, put no. it. No, I would say we take you at your word, and. We agreed that the, the technology has evolved to the point where this is possible. And we are going to work with you to come up with a workable set of regulations to ensure that we achieve those targets and that all of the industry achieves the targets that those with ESG uh, commitments right. have made.
0: Okay. So oil and gas <laughs> leakage, huge problem in Colorado and some other states being legislated as well. So we can't avoid it anymore. Transportation. Let's talk, to, let's, <laughs> let's talk about transportation. Um, you know, the, the the thing that grumpy environmentalists say in response to almost every state uh, sort of climate action plan or set of legislation, they said the same thing in Washington, is it's fine and they need to do all this, but you're also spending a bunch of money on roads. You're also widening a bunch of highways. We all know, everybody knows now, it's been proven a trillion times that widening roads doesn't help anything, doesn't reduce congestion. It just leads to more cars on the road and more pollution. So maybe say a little bit about the broader transportation context and how you think about that relative to to steps you've taken. And then let's hear about the steps.
1: So transportation, as we noted, is now the the largest single source of emissions in the state, just barely, but it's definitely a big one. And You know, we face the same issues that, as you noted, kind of every state that is working on this does. Transportation is a really challenging sector to work on because it involves, you know, the decisions of millions of people about how Mm. they're going to get around. It is very much influenced by land use decisions that are made Mm. by local governments Mm -hmm. that include both the decisions to to build very dispersed development that puts housing very far away from jobs and the decisions by other communities to uh, enact exclusionary zoning that doesn't allow Mm -hmm. housing near the jobs. We have a tradition of local governments having a lot of flexibility to make those decisions. And even more than building highways, you know, that's our the big thing that, yes. that really drives the vehicle miles traveled. And, yeah. And, well,
0: I was going to, I was going to address <laughs> that later, but let's talk about that now. Cause, cause this is the big missing piece in all climate plans. Right. And it's like, we know from, from research that density walkability transit um, is one of the best and necessary ways to reduce transportation emissions. You, you can, you can switch out cars for, for electric vehicles, but you still are left with a bunch of the problems of cars, a bunch of the long commutes, the, the other kinds of pollution, just the general unpleasantness. So do state governments have any instruments or tools whereby to impose some sort of reason or some sort of positive direction on those local decisions? How do you think about that?
1: In the Colorado context, I think the way that I would frame it is One big step is that as a state, we're we're acknowledging we have a problem. (laughs) And so in the GHD roadmap, really for the first time, we identified exclusionary zoning as an issue that we need to uh, address as part of our uh, attempts to address, you know, transportation emissions. And this year, for the first time, we actually had two pieces of legislation that are just sort of the initial front uh, of starting to act on this and you know they're, they're incentive bills you know one of them is a bill that created a new fund for affordable housing and in order for a city to get access to the funding they need to do at least one thing from a menu of options and that includes making duplexes and triplexes by right in <laughs> residential zoning districts and it includes getting rid of occupancy restrictions and it includes getting rid of maximum parking requirements in at least parts of the community. There was another bill that offered something that cities have wanted for quite a while, which is greater flexibility to do inclusionary zoning requirements for rental housing. Mm. Um, but again, in order to get permission to do that, you had to pick from one of these things that you know would help to increase housing opportunities and density within the community. I think there's a lot of interest in thinking about how do we continue down that pathway? You're and surely, again, given you're surely
0: politics, watching California, you know, where, where they're trying <laughs> to imp- yeah. impose some state rules and the blowback is, is predictably nasty.
1: I think that what is gonna be politically viable in Colorado, at least in the near term, will really focus on creating incentives, you know, it, and it may be figuring out how do we bring more money to the table and create you know, really meaningful incentives for local governments. You know, I don't think that the politics here would make it possible to do, you know, a Senator Wiener-like legislation from <laughs> California. That's not, that's not on the table here. It's not politically viable. But we, we are certainly interested in starting to incentivize those local governments that are on the verge of being willing to, to go in this direction. Because in actual fact, there's a lot of benefits for the local communities. It's not just about those broad climate benefits. It's about creating communities that people can afford to live in and that they can get places by walking. And. You know, there's there's really strong reasons why this is good for the communities, not just good for the state. And we're yes, works.
0: but not always yeah. good for not always good for the for the homeowners who show up for the meetings, though. That's, that's the thing with local control.
1: Yeah, you know, I was a I was a mayor for a number of years, and I, I lived that. <laughs> you
0: poor, you poor man.
1: Well, what about
0: transit though? Does state have a little bit more, you know, influence over transit, or is that mostly local too?
1: So. Certainly our, our big transit uh, provider in, in Colorado is in the Denver metro area, and they are primarily funded by local sales taxes and they're controlled by an independent board. We did have a large transportation funding bill this year that I think was pretty important for starting to change the direction on transportation in Colorado. It did a number of things, and it certainly provides uh, money for our state transportation department's 10-year plan that does include major highway expansions, but it also uh, does a major investment in transportation electrification, nearly three quarters of a billion uh, dollars over the next decade that we think is going to be very important to achieving our EV targets, both in the light duty space and in the truck and truck and bus what's that money
0: what's that money go to specifically is it like point of sale rebates or or charging stations or do you know yet or
1: well so it does a number of things and i would say we already have an existing assignable refundable tax credit Mm. for uh, light duty vehicles and actually for for larger vehicles but it's a pretty small for the for the larger vehicles as a percentage of their cost because it is assignable. You can actually ass- assign it to the car financing company at the point of sale. So for the companies that engage in that, which so far is Nissan and GM, it mm-hmm. acts like a point of sale rebate. We also have existing law requiring utilities to invest, and Excel just got a plan approved to spend a $100 million over the next three years, mainly in infrastructure, but it also includes enhanced point-of-sale rebates for low-income customers. Oh, cool. But this $730, 730 million approximately, is divided into three buckets. One bucket will go to our Department of Transportation, where it will be used to help transit agencies buy electric buses.
0: Mm, another, my favorite.
1: Another bucket goes to our Department of Public Health and Environment, where... It'll be a clean fleet enterprise that will be spent on electric school buses, Mm. public vehicles, um, helping Uber and Lyft drivers switch to electric. And that part Mm. is actually funded by a a fee on Uber and Lyft rides. And the fee is one level if you're in an ICE vehicle and a single passenger. And it's half as much if you're in an electric vehicle or have (laughs) two or more passengers. Funny. Um, And... Then it also will go to helping fleet transition for medium and heavy-duty trucks. And then the other bucket that lives here at the energy office goes to EV charging infrastructure, and it goes to supporting low- and moderate-income EV adoption. And the structure that we're looking at is is kind of cribbed from what we've seen in some other states. And it's sort of like a cash for clunkers, but where... We will work with you on both converting to an electric vehicle or to an electric bike, if that works better for you.
0: Oh, Um, electric bikes. That's going to make some people happy.
1: Yeah, you know, we started an e-bike pilot last year and people have loved it. And we're going to use this money to to grow it substantially because it doesn't take that much money to do some pretty significant things with e-bikes. Senate Bill 260 also create this new transportation funding bill both really ramped up the state investment in things other than roads. Like historically, most of our state transportation dollars were largely by constitution, were directed towards highways. We did manage to change that for the local government share of gas tax revenues a few years ago. We were able to change it. So that's now Flexible dollars; it can be used for transit, roads, or bike ped. And so, the this new bill puts a billion dollars into that local share that can be used for whatever locals want. It puts a bunch of money into a multimodal options fund that is basically money that local governments can apply for for transit or bike ped projects. They have to match it for one one for one, so it kind of doubles the amount that goes into, into that multimodal. It created a new air quality mitigation fund that's kind of focused on our areas that are in non-attainment with federal ozone standards and on environmental justice communities. And then it makes a bunch of changes to the planning process that will have an impact going forward.
0: I wanted to ask about that. Were you where the State Department of Transportation you had some new planning requirements there that they um you know include greenhouse gases in their. In their planning that they incorporate induced demand in road planning which you'd think like how could any professional <laughs> transportation agency not be incorporating induced demand by now but but I'm, I'm curious i mean maybe you can't really answer this but sort of notoriously it's true in washington like state departments of transportation are like dinosaur agencies they have like the, they're like the caboose of the sustainable transportation thinking I don't know why they all ended up like that but but do you have that same problem in Colorado like how, what's the level of sort of wokeness of your of your department of transportation
1: so our DOT has really changed in the last two and a half years when Governor Polis came in He brought in as our DOT director a woman named Shoshana Liu, who had been in the Obama DOT, where her role had actually been helping to, among other things, develop the light-duty vehicle GHG standards and uh, CAFE standards. And so she was the first state DOT director who I know who really comes from a background of caring about climate. Right. And it was certainly a... A large cultural transition for the agency among other things it was the first time that there was a young woman running the, <laughs> the that that agency and one of the the things that is really striking that is very different from other dots is the extent to which many of the leadership positions there are now women from a climate background wow in in planning in the new Office of Innovative Mobility, where they created to focus on electrification and transit and actually hired somebody away from the energy office who was leading Mm -hmm. our climate and transportation efforts. So the culture there has really changed. They've actually, over the last two years, really begun to do things like incorporate induced demand into their modeling and to really start thinking much more broadly about the role of transportation shoshana created a new program coming along with covid to provide state funding to help with local street conversions from car only streets to streets that could be used for walking biking transit or sort of retail and restaurant use that was super popular people love it we now have 115 million coming out of this transportation bill to expand that program. And so we're already seeing, I think, a much more progressive vision on transportation in Colorado than you saw in the past. Mm. But this legislation really builds in a focus both on environmental justice, creates a new division of environmental justice, requires much more modeling and mitigation of things like particulate uh, emissions near highways. And it uh, builds in an ongoing requirement that the DOT incorporate into its planning, uh, helping to achieve the state greenhouse gas targets. So there's actually a rulemaking that is about to start at our state transportation commission to create greenhouse gas uh, budgets for transportation plans. And future plans will have to show how they can achieve those targets.
0: Will any of that apply to the current highway widening plans that are set for the next 10 years, or is this just for future?
1: So it will certainly apply over the next 10 years. It does not apply to the existing plan. Even though you describe them as 10-year plans, they get updated every few years. right? And so the, the legislation explicitly requires That the next time the plan is updated, the new requirements around greenhouse gas mitigation and whatever new rules are adopted by the Transportation Commission and the Air Commission would apply both to the DOT and to our metropolitan planning organizations. And it also tied some of the new funding uh, to a a requirement that in order to access that new funding, plans would need to be updated within the next three years.
0: Oh, interesting. So there's at least a there's at least a (laughs) a chance then that not all of the highway widening that's currently in the plan ends up happening.
1: Uh, So there are some there are some projects that are certainly going to happen, but the projects that are very far along and the ones that most people think probably make sense. So we have a a highway through Denver, Highway Two Seventy, that is extremely congested, where they are planning on adding some high occupancy toll lanes to them, that is going to move forward. And there are reasonable arguments as to why it should move forward and it's going to move forward. There's a project on Interstate 70 up into the mountains where the road is three lanes and then it's two lanes for a while and then it's three lanes again where they're gonna make it continuous three lanes. You know, that they're very close to starting construction. That's gonna happen. But projects that are further out in the in the plan will certainly need to be reevaluated um, under the new planning rules
0: right okay let's let's move on to the last big thing I wanted to hit before maybe uh, the last two things I want to talk about uh, environmental justice quickly because there's environmental justice kind of sprinkled Throughout. So what's the kind of what's the big story on on environmental justice and where are, sort of where are, are you most proud of like it showing up in legislation.
1: Yeah, so this, this is an issue that I think in Colorado as in many places and as in the national conversation. You know, this has really become a much larger part of the conversation over yeah. the last year. There's much more community engagement and organizing around this and there's a lot of elements in in legislation. The climate legislation that just passed creates a new environmental justice ombudsperson at our public health and environment department. It creates a new environmental justice advisory board and gives them some real authority over uh, money because it's gonna take environmental fines that companies pay and transition those out of our state general fund into a new fund for mitigation in EJ communities. And the Environmental oh, Justice Advisory Board will have a huge role in how that money gets allocated. There was a creation of this new Environmental Justice Office at CDOT to make sure that as CDOT is planning transportation projects, they're really engaging and thinking about you know some of those historical injustices and what the impacts of those projects will be. And then there are multiple places where various utility programs are being structured so that significant portions of the investment have to go to benefit either low-income communities or individual low-income residents. The other other place that I think is going to be a significant focus is as we move forward with these new transportation electrification investments, we're really going to have a a focus on deploying especially heavy duty electrification in those communities that are most impacted by pollution. Right. So we have an area, for example, in North Denver where there are three major highways, tons of trucks and you know, trucking fleets that are headquartered around there, the Suncor Refinery and multiple other industrial facilities. You know, when, when you think about the, the areas that are most uh, polluted and where people are really being, you know, very much impacted by localized air pollution, you know, that's a, not the only place in the state, but it's really a, a prime example. And it's a place where when we think about fleet investments and where we're going to deploy charging, I think there will be a major focus on assuring that that's one of the areas that we focus on early.
0: The one final thing I, I had a question about that is the the advisory board. What are the, I guess, you know, when the like EJ people hear about something like that, they, they're they naturally, I think, uh, suspicious a little bit <laughs> given history. So like what teeth does it have? Can it grind things to a halt? Can it really like, what what are the legal mechanisms around it?
1: So again, the, the place where we'll have the strongest authority is over how those new mitigation funds are spent Got in EJ it. communities, but it will also certainly have a, a voice in the operations of the Department of Public Health and Environment and will we'll have a voice in the rulemaking process. But it, as you said, it, it will certainly be a, an evolving process as we see you know, exactly how it brings a, the EJ voice to bear in those rulemakings.
0: Okay, just by, by way of wrapping up, I've kept you, I've kept you long enough now. This is, it's, you've done so much stuff, we could just do a laundry list for, uh, <laughs> for two hours. Um, there was some controversy along the way. Uh, the, the, some of the state environmental groups uh, got upset. And I think insofar as I understand it, the idea was that the roadmap that, that the governor released doesn't have legally enforceable caps in these sectors it it, it, it uh, relies on you know sort of the like sectoral policies and incentives and voluntary agreements you know and so they tried to put forward a bill Senate bill 200 that i guess basically would have created a cap and trade system or at least caps on all these sectors and then there was some negotiation and now there are caps on some sectors and not others yeah. t- tell me your <laughs> tell me the the, ca- the capsule version of that of that
1: story yeah i, I will do my best <laughs> and i I think you framed it fairly well. There was certainly a narrative that was out there that the roadmap was a purely voluntarily and voluntary and aspirational document. I never quite understood that when we were moving forward in clean energy plans at the Public Utilities Commission and <laughs> yeah. rulemakings on oil and gas at the air Commission had already adopted low and zero emission. Um, vehicle standards have a 2022 hold for medium and heavy-duty uh, emissions, and looking at fleet rules and indirect source standards. Like there's lots of individual sectoral policies that were enforceable, but what we did not have was an overall. Cap or cap and trade program.
0: An economy-wide program. I guess that's that was the source of sort of like the complaint, right? Like that they wanted some sort of enforceable economy-wide cap, right?
1: That's right. And and I think there were a, a couple issues that that we saw. One is that from a all of the work that we had done was sort of focused on the this sectoral approach. And we had a set of strategies that we believe will get us where we, where we need to go with transportation certainly being the most challenging sector. And for a variety of reasons, the administration doesn't believe that a cap and trade program is right for Colorado and certainly not right for Colorado today. Um, we also felt like the approach in SB 200 was such that it was going to take many stakeholders including labor stakeholders and many stakeholders from you know different areas of the state and different industries who have been pretty willing to work with the state on implementing the roadmap Mm -hmm. and it was it was going to turn them into determined opponents of (laughs) climate action in colorado so but
0: but why i mean why if the targets are there why would making them legally enforceable turn these people against them unless they weren't planning on meeting them. Do You know what I mean? I mean, that's the suspicion.
1: I think part of the, the problem was that you were looking at making things enforceable in sectors where it didn't work very well. So ultimately what we, what the administration said was there were big parts of that bill that we liked. We liked the environmental justice provisions. We liked the small fees on GHG emissions to better fund the climate division within our public health and environment. Mm-hmm. We liked the social cost of carbon language, which broadened the use of social cost of uh, carbon for air regulatory purposes. Um, and we were fine with having the, the statutory caps in areas where it aligned with strategies that made sense to us. So we were already doing the rulemaking on oil and gas. That's now statutory and it, mm-hmm we're fine with having the legislature say, you have to achieve what we were planning on achieving anyhow. <laughs> they did the same thing on in the industrial sector and it added additional regulatory teeth on the electric side. That doesn't really change much because all the utilities were headed there anyhow, but it provides, and we already had the authority to, to act if we needed to, if a utility didn't move forward but it, it does strengthen that. So all of those we were fine with. Where we had issues were saying that it, the Air Commission had to adopt a cap on buildings because who are you capping? Like we have the clean heat plans on the gas right. utilities. We think that that's a really creative approach to doing sort of the closest you can get to an overall regulatory requirement in buildings that makes sense. The way that it was written we believe would have required us to create a cap-and-trade program on buildings that would likely have imposed significant costs on consumers. Whereas the way we've structured it, we have a program that lives primarily at the Public Utilities Commission that requires them to work with the utilities to develop the most cost-effective programs possible. Mm -hmm. That's not what we would have gotten out of a cap on the enforced through right. the air side. Similarly on transportation, we know that, yes, there are models out there like TCI, Transportation Climate Initiative in the mm-hmm. Northeastern states. But when we when we looked at TCI, which I think we would have been forced to do something like that. What we looked at was what, seven years now of debate over how to implement it. <laughs> Most not, of the states that are- Still not going, implemented-
0: <laughs> like not implemented by any of the states yet right i mean it's still not
1: not implemented anywhere and when you look at the projections of what it would actually do it would generate revenue to invest in electrification and multimodal transportation when you look at the amount for the four states that are talking about going forward you look at the amount that would be invested per state and we are getting more more money invested in electrification and multimodal transportation by passing our transportation bill this year Mm -hmm. than we would if we were a TCI state. So we sort of looked at it and said, why would we do this incredibly complicated and controversial Mm -hmm. transportation cap approach when we can just work with a wide variety of stakeholders, have support from the business community and from local governments and from environmental community on these new transportation fees and just move forward in a much more straightforward and less controversial way. It just seems like common sense to us. And ultimately that we were able to uh, get to uh, a place with the legislative sponsors and advocates where we moved, moved forward in with the emissions, legislatively adopted emissions caps in those sectors where it works move forward on the whole suite of buildings bills that we think is the most elegant approach Mm -hmm. to having as close as you can get to an assured approach on the the building side. And we're able to take significant steps on transportation and we will continue as a state to, to move forward in multiple ways on transportation. We know after this greenhouse gas budget rule is adopted, we need to think about medium and heavy duty vehicles. We then need to think about post 2025 light duty vehicle rules and there'll be more work to do in the future.
0: They're not here to defend themselves. So maybe this is not fair, (laughs) but I feel like some, some of the people in the environmental community have an exaggerated sense of like the significance of statutory caps. I mean, people are passing statutory caps all over the place that are getting (laughs) violated and thrown out and you know, like there's no, it's not magic just because you make it statutory that it's definitely going to happen. You have to do the sort of ground level work, the sort of detailed sector by sector work, regardless, even if you have the cap. So,
1: And the caps make more sense, you know, when, when you have a handful of industrial right. operations that you can work with, traditional regulatory approach makes great sense. When you're talking about millions of individual buildings <laughs> and vehicles, right. You have to focus on a broader suite of strategies to get you market transformation.
0: What about a, a clean fuel standard, like uh, like in Washington? and Well, it's on uh, the whole West Coast no. now. I guess did you did you think about that?
1: So we did, and it's not on our near term agenda. You know, we took a look at it. We did a feasibility study a year ago, and the thing that gave us significant pause was when we when we did the analysis and looked at different scenarios for for how you would comply what we saw was a combination of both you know a fair amount of cost passed on to consumers Mm. but most of the money going into biofuels so (laughs) and from our perspective we think that the future is really about electrification there may be an important role for hydrogen in, you know the long-haul heavy-duty space um but at, at least, you know, based on our analysis to date, we don't see uh the, the future as being largely about, you know, biofuels in the transportation sector. Right. And we were a little put off by an approach in which we were going to drive a lot of costs with most of the compliance happening through biofuels.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's sort of the, the danger of kind of the tax approach or the incremental rising cost approach is you get the cheapest proximate solutions, right? But they might not be the ultimate solutions. And if you know the ultimate solutions, why not just skip straight there <laughs> instead of instead of trying this sort of bank shot ratchet uh, no. attempt? Well, uh, this has been very illuminating and excellent. The last, last question then is... Um, you know, I, I understand you don't have authorization yet from the, from the governor's office to give specifics about, about your next term agenda, but what are the, what in your mind are kind of the big climate wise and clean energy wise, what are the big pieces left for Colorado to tackle?
1: Well, so two of them I've already touched on and that is I, we really do need to um, take the next steps on building codes. Uh, we really do need to figure out you know, how the state can work with local governments to help move towards uh, better approaches to land use that will tend to reduce VMT Mm. and greenhouse gas is instead of uh, driving higher levels of driving and actually higher, in many cases, higher levels of building energy use also.
0: Well, uh, it's amazing what happens when you elect a bunch of Democrats, I got to say.
1: And, you know, Governor Polis has been a a real visionary in this stuff. I, you know, I realize that the environmental community hasn't necessarily framed him as a climate champion in a way that we've seen in some other states, but boy, you know, working in the administration, I have seen the kind of all of government approach where he is building a focus on climate into every relevant department in the state and is giving us a a real free hand to to move creative policy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, even though we've spent now almost an hour and a half talking about it, we've only hit kind of the big items. So there's all these, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I love reading about, just this sort of really small bore, very specific stuff, just tweaking this agency or this department or this, you know, this budget, just little things. But like, those are the things that add up. It's like hundreds and hundreds of those things that that really add up in the end. Yep. Well, uh, thanks so much, Will. And uh, maybe uh, we'll see what y'all do next session and uh, have you back on.
1: Sounds good. Thank you, David. All right.
0: Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.